10. <laughs> We're, we've been trying desperately to get into Romans chapter 10 for the last month or so. I, I went back and checked. Uh, the, I think the first time I dealt with Romans 10 was October 1st. And then um, I think we had two more uh, opportunities in which I, I went back and reviewed. <laughs> um, um, so a brief review this morning. There, oh, the, uh, the section of Romans that we're in is important. Romans chapter 10 comes between chapters 9 and 11. And that's, uh, that's an insight that most people don't pay attention to. Uh, uh, in fact, they don't because um, a pair of verses that we'll run across in this passage have been used for all sorts of purposes, none of them uh, to demonstrate what Paul's trying to get at in the passage. So uh, it's important that we see this. The issue in this passage is the future of Israel. Does Israel have any future? Have they been passed over? Is, in fact, is Israel proof that, Paul, that your gospel, first, is false, and, and secondly, that it's dead wrong? Because you said at the end of chapter 8, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord, and yet Israel is separated from the love of God. And so how can you say that nothing will separate us since Israel has been separated? And so there are lots of purposes that are going on in chapters 9 to 11. And as we've developed it, there, there are five parts to the answer to the questions. And first is that God has hardened unbelieving Israel. Um, so that was through 929. Beginning at, t- at 930, um, chapter 9, verse 30, not the hour, uh, at 930, we have uh, the second part of the statement. It's because Israel rejected God's righteousness. And he makes that point specifically in chapter 10, verse 3. It kind of uh, dominates the whole of the chapter, uh, looking at 10, 3 not knowing the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. And that's critical in this whole passage. The issue always has been from Romans 1.18 on, whose righteousness are you going to bring before God? <clears throat> and so he spends chapter 1.18 to 3.20 showing that there can be no human righteousness before God. None is acceptable. And then beginning at 321 and going through the end of chapter 5, he shows that it is the work of God in Jesus first in chapter 321 and following uh, that has accomplished salvation for us. But, But in addition, the salvation that he has accomplished has granted us a righteousness, but not one of our own. It's not my own righteousness. Um, So the anniversary, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation that we've just observed, this was the point. Uh, as a no doubt you heard in that, Re- in that Reformation Sunday morning, um, uh, Luther believed before he came to Christ, he believed that the righteousness of God was the righteousness that he exercises in his mind, sitting on the rainbow, watching for sinners to sin so that he could hurl lightning bolts at them and destroy them. By the way, that's what got him into a monastery. He, was, uh, he had just finished his preparation to become a lawyer, 
he was riding back to his hometown when in, in a thunderstorm, he, a, a lightning bolt hit nearby, knocked him off his donkey, and he lay in the ground, on the ground crying out uh, to St. Anne, I'll, I'll become a monk. And it was in becoming a monk in his struggles as a monk that he uh, finally came to understand the book of Romans that he was teaching. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, I've heard of using the Roman road to lead people to Christ. I've never heard of anybody living the Roman road and coming to Christ <laughs> except, except Martin Luther. And in a fashion, me, because I, it was my own teaching of the book of Romans that got me out of, out of uh, legalism and into grace. Um, I have a friend. This, this is going to be awfully self-serving, so please forgive me on this. But I have a friend whom I've met a few times. Uh, he lives in Sydney, Australia. He's a professor at a seminary there. <clears throat> He's just come out with a book on Romans. <coughs> and then it, he quotes my testimony, <laughs> of all things. I was very thankful for that. Um, he's taking a different view of Romans than I am, but uh, I, was, I was gratified to have that uh, honor played, uh, paid to the testimony that I gave there in Australia several years ago. In any case, by the way, the other piece of, of uh, housekeeping, the editor, the publisher, says that the Romans commentary looks like it'll come out around number, uh, November 20th. And so I'm incredibly thankful for that. Uh, I, I never dreamed that this day would come. Never, not even dreamed of it. I, I wrote the book because I had to, personally. It was, it was on my soul. It had to be written. <coughs> but I never anticipated anybody would ever want to publish it. So having it come to light is, is quite a blessing. Um, but no, I'm not. No, I'm incredibly proud. That's the problem. <laughs> uh, well, I've. I've yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh. At midterms every semester in seminary, I prayed for the rapture. <laughs> Please don't let finals come. <laughs> let me escape them. And then when I didn't have to take finals the last semester in the master's program, I prayed, Lord, please let me graduate before you come. <laughs> I don't know why getting that degree was so important. but, but uh, So November 19th. All right, I'll watch for that. Since he's, since he's predicted it isn't going to happen. So we got that down. <laughs> but... Uh, um, but here uh, we're in Romans chapter 10. The righteousness, um, you see, that, that Luther didn't understand first. He misunderstood God's righteousness. I just, I just send you to, don't turn there now, but Isaiah 46, 12 and 13, you need to read those verses. Um, and think about what's, what righteousness means in, the, in those two verses. It's critical that you understand them. If I don't know the Old Testament, I'm not going to understand the New. I, I need to understand the righteousness of God in the Old Testament. Um, but that's kind of a touchstone verse for that whole concept. Isaiah 46, 12 and 13, if you're wanting to write that down. 
Luther also misunderstood, thinking that righteousness was at its heart our obedience, that we must obey enough to be fit for God's kingdom. And he would spend hours confessing his sins to his confessor, Staupitz, I think was his name, um, and uh, hours confessing his sins. And when Staupitz would, would pronounce absolution, Luther would leave Staupitz's cell, shut the door, start down the hall to his own cell, and remember some more sins and go back in. And Staupitz finally told him, uh, Brother Martin, go away and don't come back until you've got some real sins to confess. <laughs> um, so, the, so this was Luther's life until he realized that the righteousness, first, the righteousness of God is, is in fact in Scripture that by which he judges, but it's also that by which he saves. And that's the most astonishing thing. That's Isaiah 46, 12, and 13. Um, and then I started looking from, from there. I started branching out and looking at it in the Psalms and looking at it in Isaiah and other places. And it's used this way lots and lots of times. But secondly, what I struggled with was the same concept, that righteousness in us is, is our obedience, that the synonym, the proper synonym for righteousness was obedience. But then I couldn't make any sense out of chapter 4 of Romans, where he contrasts faith with obedience in verses 4 and 5. And then in verses 9 and 10, he just made such a mess of things. I couldn't make sense out of it. What, in you, what are you talking about, Paul? F faith is counted as obedience? Well, if it's counted as obedience, then faith is a work. And we're not saved by works. We're saved by faith. But faith is a work. Are you with me here? Till I realized one day that an idea I had rejected ten years earlier turned out to be right. The synonym for obedience, I'm sorry, for righteousness is not obedience. Obedience is an effect of righteousness. It is not what righteousness is. For I have to be a sinner before I can sin, Paul says in Romans chapter 5, 18 and 19. Then I must be righteousness, sorry, I must be righteous before I can act righteously. Being precedes doing. Can I ask a, a question? Do you think Luther or yourself, back in the old days, <laughs> so to speak, that if you were to uh, die without, with unconfessed sin that you would go to hell? No. I don't know what Luther believed. He probably did believe that. I did not. Uh, but, but Luther may well have believed that. Um, because salvation... Look, folks, Luther, Luther founded his theology in one apostle who, before, before he came to understand grace. No? Peter. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Let me show you. It's, it's there right in the text. This is, this is the danger of taking only one writer of Scripture and using that to uh, determine all the theology of the Bible. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse uh, 3. As we read 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5, 
I want you to notice where the word salvation is used and what it means in its context. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, because of the greatness of his compassion, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Notice new birth. Yes? And from a broad New Testament point of view, as, as from Peter's point of view, the broad New Testament concept of salvation begins with new birth. Um, verse 4. For an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, will not fade away, kept in heaven for you. That's glorification. That's the third stage of salvation. New birth in the New Testament. New birth leads to, finally, glorification. Verse 5, for you who are being kept by the power of God through faith to a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Now stop. We're being kept by something. What are we being kept by? No. What power? Look at the text. We're kept by what? The power of God. And he uses faith. So it's not my faith that keeps me. It's God's power that keeps my faith. But that's the intermediate stage of salvation, what we call um, spirit, uh, sanctification. Uh, so I have new birth, sanctification, glorification. New birth begins the whole process. New, birth begins life. Is that true or not? You left uh, your daughter at the, at the, air, at the airport. <laughs> Tailing in the airport. I don't know where I am this morning. Uh, you left your daughter at the, ho uh, at the hospital, no doubt, when she was born, yes? No? Oh, why not? The only thing that's important is birth. <laughs> she would have died. She would have died. Uh, the, 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 of course, the only thing important is not birth. Birth is critical, but birth is so exciting to us because it starts a new life. Yes? And the life is a life of growth in the grace of God that leads to then glorification. But what does Paul call salvation? I'm sorry, Peter. What does Peter call salvation in verse 5? How do you know that? It's reserved for you. It's kept for us a, a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. For Peter, salvation is future. You don't have salvation until the last time. Are you with me here? And if I define my theology on Peter, then I, nobody has salvation until we get to the kingdom, finally. You follow this? Mm -hmm. this? This is exceedingly dangerous to take only one author and define your whole theology based on that author. Uh, there are 66 books in the scriptures, not only a few. Yes, ma'am? I can't hear you. What's the purpose of what he's saying? Yeah. Um, purp in, in the purpose of, of, his, uh, of his writing, he's, he's calling them to endure persecution. So he's not telling them they're not saved. He's just he's using the term salvation in a peculiar way. About half of the references to the word save and the word salvation in the New Testament refer to new birth. I guess what I want to know is yeah. if, if, if I'm witnessing someone who's mm -hmm. not read the Bible, yeah. who's not familiar, and, and they happen to open the book to the... Yeah. And they, they have a question about it. Yeah. 
Yeah, Peter's writing to people who are facing and going to face persecution, and he's preparing them for that. That's his purpose in writing. It's not so much calling people to salvation. Indeed, uh, look at, is it verse 1? Um, I've already turned away from it. Um, well, it's verse, uh, t- turn to Second Peter 1, where he's writing apparently to the same group of folk. Um, so, uh, so 2 Peter 1, 1, Simon Peter, a bond slave and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have what? Received faith. What kind of faith? Equally valuable. Uh, you have received uh, a faith equally valuable with ours. They are, they are already believers. So this is not an, an evangelistic book. It's more of a, a Christian life book for First and Second Peter. So in evangelism, the probability they're not going to turn to First Peter one. It's it's hard to find First Peter, uh, but if you get somebody who's reading through the Bible, you've got to help them think through these things. About half of the references to save and salvation in the New Testament refer to the new the beginning of the process. The other half refer to one of the other two concepts. Are you with me? Yes. So. I'm never safe in saying, well, it says save, it must be being born again. No, it doesn't have to be being born again. It can be other things. The context determines everything. And the only way you know what a text means is to know its context. Yes, okay. There are several different aspects of salvation. And that's where we run into trouble. That's right. Uh-huh. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. I, I grew up. I grew up in a, in circles. One of our pastors, uh, while I was in seminary, said the evidence of uh, spirit fullness is a, a successful evangelism. Everything he his, his that group that he was in determined everything. All theology depends upon what I can understand fosters evangelism, but never on what the text actually says. The, the text was not that important. It was their concept of what evangelism is. Fred? In following up on King, yeah. uh, that, that definition of salvation in Hebrews, mm-hmm. salvation mean more like sanctification? No, it, it really is referring in Hebrews. Again, Hebrews 1.14 uh, is kind of a, a basic point to begin to think about Hebrews' salvation or the, the salvation in the book of Hebrews. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are about to inherit salvation? Um, and, and I've asked you, and now it's becoming really significant. How much of your inheritance can you spend before you get it? None of it. None of it. That's getting fairly significant. <laughs> uh, the, being an heir means you don't have what you're about to inherit. Does that make sense to you? So salvation in Hebrews is altogether future. And that's, the, that's where people get in all kinds of trouble in Hebrews chapter 6 because they think you can lose your salvation, but you cannot lose what you do not have. But in Peter it just said that, if I remember the verse correctly, you, I was just going to say one saved, all saved. Said, Effectively, yeah. So let's, let's get back to, Hebrew, to Romans 10 then. What's going on here? I finally realized on a day in October of 1985 
that righteousness cannot be synonymous with obedience because that makes Paul contradict himself in Romans 4. And anything that makes a good writer self-contradictory is probably a wrong interpretation. Does that make sense? So if I think I found an error in the Bible, it's more likely to be in my mind than in the Bible. And so so I'm better to change what I think than to change what the Bible is saying. Um, So the effect has been, I realized that day in October of 1985 that righteousness had to be something that I had rejected 10 years earlier, but in fact now had to embrace, and that is that righteousness is not how I act. It's what I have. It's what I am. I am in right relationship with God. And that right relationship with God bears fruit in obedience, but it, it does that only by way of maturity. So, so a newborn baby, how obedient is a newborn baby? Well, yeah, which means, not so much means, no. not at all. Is, the, is a newborn baby disobedient? No. So what are we saying? A baby can't be obedient. A newborn cannot be obedient because the child has no maturity. Maturity brings growing obedience. Are you with me? Gosh. That, that these ideas began to dawn on me over two years. It was just astonishing to watch them. So here in Romans 10, he is saying, look, the problem with Israel is not that the gospel is wrong. The problem with Israel is not that God uh, separates from people that he loves. The problem is they rejected the righteousness of God. It's puzzled me for some years, and I think I have an answer now to it. Is God, and I think we've raised this in the recent weeks, so I'll go through it more quickly this time. Is God so self-centered that unless people praise him, he's going to damn them to hell? That's what it sounds like, isn't it? So how do we even address that? And I finally realized, folks, the answer is in John. 17, uh, what is it, 2 or 3. This is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. If I reject life, what's left? Death. There is no alternative. There are only two things, life and death, that we know. Yes? There are no third entities out there between life and death. So if I reject God, whom to know is life eternal, there's nothing but death left. They've rejected the righteousness of God. Now, let's pick it up at verse 5. With the time remaining, we'll work our way as far as we can. This is, this is an, actually a fairly significant passage, and it will take us a few minutes to work through it. But, but So uh, let me introduce it with verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law as far as righteousness is concerned to those who believe. Or to to everyone who believes. It's the end of the law. What does that mean? Well, it sounds like it means termination. Yes? The work of salvation is done. The work of salvation is done. Sounds like it means termination of the law. Um, 
And it probably does. I think that's, that is what it says. But there's more. The word end can also mean goal. What is the end of this action? Yes. Yeah, yeah. We we don't even have time to discuss that. But but yeah, he did. Um, so what is it? Yeah. What is the yeah the purpose? It's the purpose of the law for righteousness or the goal. Goal would be better. The the end product, the target of of the thing. Why does a football? I'm sorry to use a football analogy, but the Sooners did win yesterday, so. Uh, I saw that and and thankful for it. Uh, I think I think Oklahoma will now be number three. So, uh, the uh, but the the more important thing is why does a runner in a football game stop running after at, at a certain point? He's reached the goal. So so the law has reached a goal. Christ is the end, the termination and the goal. Uh, there are people who say no, it's not termination, and there, and, and folks. Christians are desperate to keep the law in the Christian life. We're really struggling to keep the law in the Christian life. And I'll, I'll show you some of this as we go. Yes, ma'am. Here's a, um, J.B. Phillips yeah. uh, writes, For Christ means the end of the struggle for righteousness <laughs> by the law for everyone who believes yeah. in him. But we've, we've argued since Romans 6. Turn to Romans 6.14. Is it possible that Christian people can still struggle with sin? Yes. <laughs> you better hope so or you ain't in. <laughs> uh, 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 so if it's possible for Christian people to struggle with sin, why do they struggle with sin? And there's one particular form of sin that Paul's concerned about in Romans 6 and 7. And it's, a, it's the kind of sin you commit when you're trying not to do it. When you're specifically aiming not to commit a particular sin, you end up doing it. I, I know that's never happened to you, right? So Romans six fourteen, what does Paul say? Well, what does it say? Read the text. But what if I am under law? That's what Romans six fifteen through seven twenty five are about. If I'm trying to live by the law, I will be under the mastery of sin. No less writer than D. Martin Lloyd-Jones made this point many years ago. Um, he said the whole question of Romans 7, 7 to 25 is, can the Christian life be led, lived by law? I was stunned when he said that. I, that was just in his introduction. And it's, I, I, didn't, I hadn't even read the rest of the book. And that just changed my whole conception of what was going on in Romans 7. Finally understood it. I had three views, all of which were wrong. They, they each con created contradictions in the text of Scripture itself. That was the first time I was able to run, read Romans 6 and 7 without contradicting other passages of the, of the book of Romans from chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8. No other problems than that. Ah. Uh, my, my point is, then, if you're trying to... So, so Romans 6, 14, sin shall not be Lord over you because you're not under law but under grace, but what if you are under law? Then you've done it to yourself, and you will. The, the function of law found two commentaries that made this statement this last 
week and a half or so. First um, Corinthians 15, turn there. You need to see this. First Corinthians 15, um, verses 54 and 55. Uh, when therefore this corruption puts on incorruption and this mortal puts on in- immortality, then the word that was written will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O O, O, uh, death, is your thorn? The thorn of, of, of sin is death. And the power of sin is the law. No less a writer than Leon Morris says, the law is an instrument that sin uses to stir up more sin in our lives. Yes? I agree with everything you're saying, but then you go back to the, the beginning of chapter 6, where he's warning and he says, okay, now I'm not giving you permission to sin yeah. under grace. Yeah. Okay, but people are afraid of that. Yeah. The ch- now I shouldn't say that. The church is afraid of Well, that. people are too. People are desperately afraid so of grace. They need a rule. Yeah. So the law for them is like Weight Watchers. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, but they're wrong. They're wrong, absolutely they're wrong, but that's the, the logic of it. My good friend in India said to me in 1998, I think, 19, maybe 1994, I could never teach grace in the church that I serve in. It would set people free to sin. Many people say that. In, in, the, in the goodness of God, I lived long enough to come back to India and, and meet with him, and he was telling me what the teaching of grace was doing in his church. <laughs> uh, and so I'll be with him in March, uh, working in India for two weeks, Lord willing. So um, this is... This is what we're talking about. So Romans chapter 10. The, the, Christ is the end of the law as far as righteousness is concerned for everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is by the law. The one who does these things shall live by them. So what does righteousness by the law m- mean? You do it and thus you get life. Yes? Who teaches righteousness by the law according to verse 5? Moses does. Verse 6. But the righteousness by faith, or the righteousness of faith, speaks this way. Do not say in your heart, stop. That's a quotation, and your Bible may not even have a reference here. Actually, it comes from two passages. The one that's most important is in, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 9. Again, folks, all meaning comes from context. So you have to know what portion of a book a concept comes from before you can really understand what the concept is. Do not say in your heart. It comes from Deuteronomy 9, which is part of a context that began at chapter 6 and goes through chapter 11. Deuteronomy 6, uh, sorry, 6 through 11 is the exposition of the great commandment in the law. You all know the great commandment. 
What is the great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. So he's explaining what that looks like and what it means. Are you with me here? When you love God with all your heart, soul, and strength, we pointed this out a couple of weeks ago when we were last together. It really gets tough for Israel because in chapter 7, it means going in and wiping out the Canaanites. But it means something worse. You have to kill all of them, not just some of them. So the question becomes, what do you love? Do you love God? Or do you love humanity more than God? I'm, I'm with Charlie Brown, who said, I love humanity. I, it's people I can't stand. <laughs> but <laughs> but, but uh, what do you love? Do you love God? The question of Job, in part, is do you love God or do you love God's gifts? If you love God, he can take the gifts away, with you, away from you and nothing will change. If you love God's gifts, then Satan was right. He will curse you to your face. Are you with me here? Then, that is a tough one. And Deuteronomy 7 is is just profoundly difficult. Deuteronomy 9 is part of the exposition of the great commandment. And in Deuteronomy 9, he says, Do not say in your heart, it is because of my own righteousness that God has given me this land. Does that fit the context of Romans? No, <laughs> no Linda, come on now. <laughs> so that's the first thing. Then second, he says, do not say in your heart, who shall ascend into heaven? That's a quotation from Deuteronomy 30. And I'd like you to turn to Deuteronomy 30. 14, thank you. But it's, it's verse 11 where the passage begins. Deuteronomy 30 is among the very last words of Moses. It's not quite his last words, but it's among his last words. And it is part of his last sermon that he preaches to the, to the people of Israel. The book of Deuteronomy is a series of sermons on the giving of the law and its effect on Israel. So far, so good? Okay. It is not a second giving of the law. It is Paul's... I'm sorry, it's... Paul. Moses... <laughs> Paul wrote the whole Bible. I'm violating the very thing I'm saying. Uh, it's Moses' series of sermons on the giving of the law and its effect on Israel. I'm reading a book right now called The Triumph of Grace in Deuteronomy. And I knew this idea was there, but I, I didn't realize how entrenched the idea is. Israel in Deuteronomy is fundamentally a rebellious people. And this is, even though this is the second generation, the one that went into the land and did all that God commanded, yes? Yes? Have you not read Joshua 24? Well, yeah, but they didn't have to in Joshua. They did all that they com- it was commanded. It was after Joshua that the tribes would have to go in and take the lands themselves. But, as, but, but Joshua says in Joshua, what is it, 23... Not one good word of the Lord has failed of all the things he promised us. So everything that that they were commanded to do, they did. uh, Judges 1 starts telling them then what to do. Or in fact, telling what they did after Joshua's ministry was over. 
But in Joshua 24, Joshua's last words to Israel, he says, you will not be able to serve the Lord. And they said, oh, no, we will serve the Lord. He says, no, you'll not be able to. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your sins. No, we will serve the Lord and we will obey. And Joshua says, then you are witnesses against yourselves. What does the word against mean? Self, well, self-convicted, right? Witness against means self-convicted. You, you, are, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord today. Now, therefore, put away the gods that are among you. What? This is the obedient generation. What are they doing with gods among them? Are you with me here? So from Deuteronomy, I'm beginning to learn more effectively how deeply rebellious Israel was. So in Deuteronomy chapter 30, I'm still not there in my text, he is giving his last words to this rebellious people. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 1, Paul's, uh, Paul, gracious sakes, Moses says, In the future, when all these, all these, uh, when all the blessing uh, has come upon you, and all the curse uh, which I have set before you, then you will turn to, uh, uh, in your heart, uh, I'm sorry, you will return in your heart among all the, all the Gentiles where the Lord your God has driven you, and you will return to the Lord your God, and you will obey him according to all that I am commanding you today, you and your sons, with all your heart and with all your soul. So what, is, what does Moses think Israel's obedience to the law is going to look like? Nah, that's, that's, that's in the far distant future. What does he think this generation is going to look like? They're rebellious. They're, they're, they're rebellious. So is there any hope for Israel? Well, we'll look down at verse 11. So this, this is, Paul, Moses is looking into the far distant future for Israel when, uh, this is maybe 700 years later, when all the blessing and all the curse has come because they have been violating all that God has commanded and they are a people who are a rebellious people. I ask once again what we've asked before. When, when in Israel's history did they get blessing because they obeyed? Well, they got David when they were disobedient. David was the chief blessing. David was the chief blessing. Read Psalm 78. David was the chief blessing. So when did they get blessing because they obeyed? No time. So how, do, how is it that they got blessed so often? God is, a, God is far more gracious and far more merciful. We looked at Psalm 50 last time, I think. Um, all this you did and I kept silent. You thought I was just like you. Unjust. But in, in, back in Deuteronomy, what, what was the purpose of the sacrifices? <laughs> to, to keep God from wiping them out. 
Okay, but what, what I'm, I'm not saying this right. Yeah. What, how did the people see this happen? What we didn't do right was sacrifice, right? Yeah, well. The sacrifice will make up for it? Yeah. Even the rabbis taught it's not just sacrifice, but it's the right attitude in sacrifice. Yes, but it, but it's not that they that they sacrificed, but that they had the right attitude in sacrifice. You could still sacrifice your best and it not be in faith. No, not obedience. Yeah, I'm, we're going there, but not not immediately. I need to get through verse eleven and fourteen here. Verse, look at verse eleven. Um, Deuteronomy thirty verse eleven. Um, for this commandment. Which commandment? The one right above. You know, let, let me, well, hang on to, mm, Jan's wanting to get ahead of me here. Uh, um, I know, I know. She's beginning to learn six, ten before eleven. So that's, that's very important. Uh, but let me say it this way, folks. One of the best commentaries, one of the best modern commentaries on the book of Romans says, this is talking about keeping all the law. So this word, this, do you have this commandment? Yes. All right, singular? Mm-hmm. All right. He says this, is, this word is talking about all the law. This commandment that I command you today is not too difficult for you. Well, if it's not too difficult, how, to come they, how is it that they never kept it? Um, it's not up in heaven. So someone would say, who shall ascend into heaven to get it for us and bring, us, bring it down for us that we may hear it and do it. It's not across the sea so that someone will say, who will cross over the sea to bring it back to us so that we may hear it and do it. For the, for the word is near you in your mind, mind and in your heart that you may do it. This is, this is Moses' word. This is what Paul is quoting. But Paul is quoting it. Look, look back at Romans, at Romans 10. Why is Paul quoting this passage? What is he trying to teach from it? Well, no, look at, look at verse 6. What is he trying to teach from this passage? Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. Say what's in verse 6. Verse 6, Romans 10, 6. No, 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 no. Read the verse 6. The righteousness of faith speaks this way. Paul thinks what this great commentary thinks is wrong. The, the commentator says that Paul is utterly out of sorts with what Moses was saying. Then I got a real problem with that. Because Paul thinks. Moses is talking about righteousness by faith. So how can we come to that conclusion? Now go back to Romans th- uh, Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6 and verse 15. Well, well, we just read verse 11. So uh, in, in, Rome, in Deuteronomy 30? In, in Deuteronomy 30? Well, let's go back to verse 6. What, what comes before... See, see, verse 6 comes before verse 11, as Jan pointed out. She's on her way to getting a doctorate at Dallas Seminary. By the way, she already has a Ph.T. degree from Dallas Seminary, putting hubby through. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, 
but uh, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Uh, do you have then the Lord will circumcise your hearts? No. Moreover, the Lord your... Folks, Deuteronomy 10, 16, part of, the, part of the exposition of the great commandment said, circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Now, how do you circumcise your own heart? Then there is no hope or something else has to happen. God will himself circumcise your hearts. Look at it. Look carefully at it. Verse 6. And the Lord will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. What is a circumcised heart? What does it look like? What does it do? A circumcised heart is part of the exposition of the great commandment. A circumcised heart loves God with all its heart, soul, and strength. Now look at verse 15. Roman Deuteronomy 30, verse 15. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God. It's not Paul who's wrong. It's the commentary that's wrong. He's just simply flat wrong. And he's a great commentary. I turn to him consistently. But he's wrong. Folks, who teaches, according to Paul, who else teaches in the Bible righteousness by faith? Moses. Moses teaches righteousness by works, and Moses teaches righteousness by faith. He teaches righteousness by works because Israel's already rejected faith. So there's only one other way to blessing, and that's by works. But it's a way you can't walk. It's a way that will lead you nowhere except to death. Yes, sir. How many people do you think in general sin? How many of the people do you think in the Old Testament days then came to, to accept that concept of real faith? Yeah. Because many of them will be in heaven. Yes, that's right. Thousands. Um, Paul, God said to Elijah, you remember what he said. This is about the northern kingdom. What did he say? Yeah. How many? 7,000 7, in the northern kingdom. Baal worshippers. This is the days of King Ahab. Baal worshippers. But, but in a nation of Baal worshippers, there were 7,000 men God had reserved for himself. So in that wicked age, by the way, only 80 years from Solomon, in that wicked age, God had reserved a remnant according to grace, as he will say in chapter 11. Then how many were there in the days of David and Solomon and Josh, uh, Joshaphat and Hezekiah and Josiah? <laughs> Are you with me? Uh, how many were there in the days of Rehoboam and others of the kings? Yes, sir. Do you think they understood what you're sharing? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they yeah, they would have they would have understood that you that you trust God and do what he asks you to do because you trust him. And because we love him. And because you, you, you trust but faith is, see, if this passage, if I've read this passage right and let's go back to Romans 10 and we'll close up here right quick. Um, in Romans 10, if I've read this passage right, then Loving God, I'm sorry, faith is 
loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength. In 1970, Jan and I got married. And I would have said to her at any day in that period, I love you with all my heart. And that was true. <laughs> but as I've told you before, I didn't know her very well, and I sure didn't know me very well at all. But all that I knew of myself loved all that I knew of her. Forty-seven years later, I say to you, to her, I love you with all my heart. But I know a whole lot more about her. Unfortunately, she knows a whole lot more about me. <laughs> and unfortunately, I know a whole lot more about myself, but it's still true. It's more significant but it's not less true. As I grow in faith, I grow in my capacity to love. As I grow in faith, I come to understand God better, and I can, I can then understand why he's asking me to do things and get involved in them, even if I don't like them. Are you with me here? Because I trust God. I love him with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my strength. There's not much strength and the heart seems awfully small. Yes? And I seem an awfully small-souled person. But it's still true. But it's not a means of salvation. It's not a means of salvation. It is salvation. It is right relationship with God. Okay. It seems to me like your first statement you put up there, the very key word is unbelieving. Yeah. Yeah. Israel someday will be saved. Yeah. So, so what we're talking about here is what Israel rejected. Go back to verse 3. Not knowing the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. Brothers and sisters, to the extent that you're trying by your righteousness to establish your own righteousness, you are not living by faith. You're trying to live by law. And you will always be overcome by sin. You will say, but I don't do any of those wicked things I see other people do. No, you just do the worst, most wicked thing you can do. Be self-righteous. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we plead with you. We must understand. It is not an option for us. We must understand this salvation you've brought us into. We must understand you and your ways. But apart from your spirit, we can't. I can talk about it, but I can't teach it. Only your spirit can do this. So we plead with you to seal in our hearts what's true, certainly the truth of your word, but seal in, your heart, in our hearts what's true of even what I've said. Protect us what, from what I've said that's wrong. But seal in our hearts what's truth. Lead us into life everlasting. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.